Why do I read? Why do I have conversations? Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention? Why do I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone. But mostly. 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 Mostly because. Because I want to find, find out, out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find out stuff. <laughs> because I want you to tell, tell me, me something, something I, I don't know. know. Good evening, I'm Stephen Dubner, and this is Tell Me Something I Don't Know, recorded live tonight on the Upper West Side of New York City. We have got an audience full of smart people tonight, and we're going to invite them up one at a time to tell us things that are interesting or puzzling, maybe even amazing. And if it all goes as planned, we'll all be a bit smarter by the time we're through. Joining me tonight as co-host... The comedian, podcaster, and all-around excellent human being, I'd have to say. Would you please welcome Hari Kondabolu? Hello. Thank you, Stephen. My pleasure. Thanks so much for being back. It's a pleasure to, to be here. All right, Hari, we are um, really happy to have you. Let's see what we know so far about you. We know you grew up in Queens, and like yep. most comedians these days, you started out by getting a master's degree in human rights from the London School of Economics. That's correct. <laughs> We know you're co-host of the Politically Reactive podcast that you've campaigned to have the Washington Redskins logo changed to a very sunburned white man. Yeah. And we know that until you were in your mid-20s, you washed your hair twice every day with two-in-one shampoo conditioner, thinking that the first wash gave you the shampoo <laughs> and the second gave you the conditioner. Who contacted my ex-girlfriend? How on earth would anybody know that? Uh, so that's what we know. Hurry, Kundabolu, tell us something we don't know, please, about you. Sure. Um, my high school mascot is named after me. Really? Yes. Uh, Hurry the Hawk, Townsend Harris High School's mascot. Was it already a hawk? It was already a hawk, but we didn't have a, like, a physical mascot. And when I was a senior, a sophomore had raised the money to get a mascot, and he was oh. the person that was in it. And he could name it after anybody, anybody in the whole world. And he chose me. It, honestly, uh, Jonas Salk went to our high school. Like, that was our most famous alma mater. And Salk kind of rhymes with hawk, so you would think that would be the most... <laughs> lo- you put a lab coat on the hawk, and it's amazing. <laughs> And meanwhile, like, I have this legacy I've spent my whole life trying to justify. Mm. And honestly, one appearance on Letterman doesn't do it. Mm, yeah. Well, Ari, we're uh, very happy to have you here tonight for Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Here's how it works. Guests will come on stage to tell us some interesting fact or idea or story. You and I will hear them out. We'll ask some questions, and eventually our live audience will pick a winner. Victory will be based on three simple criteria. Number one. Did they tell us something we truly did not know? Number two, was it worth knowing? And number three, is it demonstrably true? To help with that demonstrably true part, would you please welcome our real-time fact-checker, Sean Ramosferum. Sean is a reporter for WNYC Studios More Perfect, the Radiolab spinoff about the Supreme Court. Sean, um, I'm told there's a super obvious reason why you are the perfect fact checker for tonight's episode? Yeah, that's right. I, I don't know if you guys can tell, but me and Hari, we're actually both um, we're both political science majors. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's why I wore glasses so they could tell the two political science majors apart. <laughs> All right, then it's time to play our little game called "Tell Me Something I Don't Know." Which please welcome our first guest, Michael Slepian.
Hey, Michael, tell us a bit about yourself, please. I am a professor at Columbia Business School. I studied the psychological effects of secrecy, the secrets that we keep, and how secrecy influences our health and well-being. You study the psychological effects of secrecy, and you teach what exactly? I teach negotiations. Oh, my goodness. So you use good for evil. I use bad for good. Sorry, yeah, yeah. right, that's right, yeah. Okay, uh, so tell us something we don't know about secret keeping. So it turns out that the real problem with having a secret is not having to hide a secret, but having to think about it. What does that mean? So it means in my research, we look at what are the secrets that we have and how secrecy influences us. I see that in my research, people keep 38 categories of secrets. So of those 38 categories, we see people commonly keep The average person right now at this moment has 13 of those secrets, five of which they've never told a single person about. Um, Can you prove that by telling us one of your five? (laughs) That's actually not how this typically works. Normally people tell me their secrets. Um, Okay, Hurry, do you want to tell Michael one of your secrets? Just because I want to hear somebody's secret. I have no secrets. So that means that, Sean, you must have 26 secrets. (laughs) Okay, so Michael, um, back up a little bit. How do you do this research? How do you know what you know? So what we do is we ask a couple thousand people what is a secret that you're currently keeping from those thousands of responses we find. You're asking this online, in person, anonymous? Online, we run these studies in Central Park um, in exchange for a bottle of water, which is very valuable on a hot summer day. And we see that there's these common themes that emerge in the secrets people have. So 38 categories, the average person has 13, five of which they've never told anyone? That's correct. Do you know um, the nature of the ones that they've never told anyone? I mean, do you know specifics of the ones they've never told anyone? I do. Um, So the most common secret that people don't tell any other person about is you have a romantic thought about someone who is not your partner. No doubt. Duh. Come on, really? <laughs> hey, this is what the science tells That's you. That's a secret? But Wait, yes. you're saying it's a secret? Yeah, I mean, I get that. That's, that's I thought why, the, comes, that's was why it's like, the most common. Yeah. I killed a man. That turns out to be pretty rare. Uh, it's <laughs> Wait, so like all the people at like Coca-Cola headquarters that are guarding the formula, they're risking their life for that then? Mm. That's right. That's one of our categories. Um, work-related <laughs> secrets, we would call that. Is that a, that's only American data that you've uh, no, we gathered? We see it in the U.S. We see it in drawing um, tourists from all over the world. That's where we ran that Central Park study. Mm-hmm. But then you began by saying that you've learned that keeping secrets is not good for you. It's bad for you, but not the way that we might think. That's correct. Okay. So you might think that the reason secrets hurt us is because having to hide a secret is hard work. It's hard to keep a secret during a social interaction. But that doesn't seem to be what's actually harmful about having a secret. It's not having to hide it, it's having to live with it. I find in my research that the more people think about their secrets, the lower their health and well-being. So just the secret itself kind of invades your thought process? It distracts you? If there's a secret you're holding back from other people, you're not talking about that thing with other people, you're not going to get a chance to sort of figure out how to effectively think about that. So it feels somewhat unresolved, and things that are unresolved will pop into our head all the time, and that turns out to be problematic for our health and well-being. So if you were, let's say, like a super powerful person who was being investigated by an agency (laughs) and withholding your secrets, you're actually causing yourself a great deal of harm. Yeah, you probably should just admit if you were that person. Interesting. (laughs) Very interesting. Mm. 
And talk for a minute about the depth of your evidence of the health consequences. Yeah, so the way we look at this, because it's nice for me that the average person has 13 secrets. So when we ask a couple hundred people, we quickly have a couple thousand secrets to explore. And we see about twice as often people are thinking about their secrets more than they actually have to hide their secrets. And the more they think about those secrets, the more disingenuous they feel, the more inauthentic they feel, and those are things that are associated with lower well-being. And um, what can you tell us about the um, people that a given person is most likely to keep secrets from? In other words, is it spouse or children or whatever? Is it friends or is it coworkers, et cetera? It comes down to romantic relationships Mm. quite a bit. People keep secrets from their partners. So if you're saying secret keeping is bad for you and secret keeping happens usually within romantic relationships, ergo, romantic relationships, bad for you. (laughs) Sean Ramsfair, Michael Slepian telling us about, I guess, what you'd call the hidden cost of secret keeping. Uh, What more can you tell us? Is it legit? I can tell you that I have a problem with your survey because I feel like at any given point, one to five people in Central Park have probably killed someone. (laughs) (laughs) I know, an interesting thing I found was that... um, Apparently, and this makes perfect sense, I guess, we're so much more inclined to tell secrets to strangers uh, because I guess the stakes are so low. A University of Chicago study in 2013 that surveyed 2,000 people found that uh, 45% of the people they surveyed uh, would tell their most intimate secrets to people they hardly knew, coworkers, doctors, hairstylists. You could lay that secret on them and just walk away. You burden this relative stranger with your deepest, darkest secrets, and then you're, you're scot-free unless that secret is murder. (laughs) (laughs) So does that mean that Catholics are healthier? Because they have... I don't think I could... I can comment on that one. (laughs) The reason why confession might be helpful is not because it releases you from the hiding, but it gives you a chance to talk about that and get a new perspective on it. Is that also why presidents get so old? That's it. That's a good thing. You know, on an earlier show, we did talk about research that uh, presidents versus people who ran for president and didn't get it, right. that they die a lot faster. Mm. And you do a lot of secret keeping as a president, I gather. So interesting. Michael, thanks for playing. Tell me something I don't know. Great job. <laughs> Would you please welcome our next guest, Shara Bailey. Hi, Shara. Hi. What do you do? I'm an associate professor and the director of the Women in Science program at New York University. Associate professor of what? Anthropology. Oh, okay. What do you have for us tonight then, please? So, before humans transitioned to agriculture, some mere 10,000 years ago, there was no need for dentists or orthodontists. The tooth problems that plague us today were virtually non-existent. After we switched to farming, our jaws get smaller... We then have the problems of tooth crowding and maleruption, they erupt funny. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> um, and you have the ubiquitous condition of, which is actually pathological, of an overbite. Hmm. So you're saying that teeth were better before agriculture. Much, before, much, much better. Much better. Um, so I guess one obvious assumption is that the food that we eat is bad for our teeth. Is that part of it, some of it, none of it? That's most of it. Most of it? Yes. Okay, I mean, that wouldn't surprise... Me, but talk about the jaw being smaller? 
Yeah, so your jaw is, of course, a bone, and bone is a dynamic substance that responds to use. Um, if you don't use your jaw, what? then it doesn't grow, it doesn't develop normally. Wait a minute, your bone, the jaw, bones respond to use? Yes, sir, they do. So if, I, uh, hmm. if I'm a baseball pitcher, does my arm get a lot longer? Your arm gets a lot larger. Yes, we can tell right-handedness Bone? from left-handedness from the skeleton. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> So you're saying that the size of the jaw has changed over evolution Mm -hmm. and that affected teeth how? Yeah, so um, when we start cooking, which uh, happened a lot earlier than we started agriculture, uh, and when we start farming, we start processing food outside of our mouth, right? Your teeth are used to process food. When you start farming, you're then grinding corn and grinding wheat, and when you're cooking, it makes it soft, right? And so then you're eating soft foods, your bone responds to that lack of use, and our jaws end up being too small for the teeth. So there's a mismatch between your tooth size and the space in which it's supposed to erupt. Huh. So, I mean, are there any benefits for us to eat, like, harder food? Yes, absolutely. What are those benefits? Your jaw will grow correctly. You probably will not have uh, an overbite, and right. you will, your teeth will come in correctly, and they won't be all skewed. So and, babies uh, should not be eating baby food, then? Mm, well, you know, until they have teeth, they pretty much have to eat baby food. Oh, okay, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. You can give them granola. You can give them sugar-free gum. Uh, if you're using your jaw, then that'll help your jaw develop um, correctly. Okay, so we started eating different food because of agriculture and cooking, and then our jaws stopped growing, but it sounds like you're saying the number and maybe even size of teeth did not stop growing. Why didn't the teeth keep up with the jaw in evolution? Our teeth have gotten smaller. And in fact, there's a really good correlation between uh, evidence for fire and uh, reduction of tooth size uh, over uh, the course of human evolution. And, um, and that's in response to you know how we're using our jaws, but... As you develop, if you're not using your jaw, it doesn't reach its potential. And then there's a mismatch between the size of the jaw and the size of the yes. cumulative teeth yeah. in there. So you have impacted teeth. Mm-hmm. And so your teeth are, your jaw and your teeth are stronger as a result of eating harder foods. Absolutely. Early. So mm-hmm. that means like you could eat tons of sugar after the fact in your No, good. no, no. Oh, okay. So we're, 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 we're talking about um, occlusion, the way your teeth come together, and the way your teeth fit into your mouth. But caries and cavities are completely different things. So uh, once, once people start farming, especially corn, uh, your teeth go to hell in a handbasket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, Sean, um, the incredible shrinking jaw... What more can you tell us? Yeah, it checks out. You know, um, meat was really good for our teeth, and, and people were eating roots and, and bulbs and stuff. And then as soon as farming came in, it was, it was over for, for teeth quality, I guess. But apparently meats and roots and bulbs, terrible for your breath. Mm. So people had terrible, terrible breath and great teeth. <laughs> I- <laughs> so it just sounds like, people, like the ancient man had terrible breath for a very long time. <laughs> Um, until the Egyptians, I guess, had a toothpaste-like substance mm, that was yes. also what they used for embalming mummies, mm. which is wild. Uh, and then the Greeks apparently had like a refreshing blend of um, salt and vinegar that they used as like mouthwash. It sounds delicious. And then, and then we moved like citrus a hundred years later, and then parsley before anything mm. remotely minty hit the scene. Shara Bailey, thank you so much for playing. Tell me something I don't know. It is time now for a quick break. When we return, more guests will make Hari Kondabolo tell us some things we don't know. If you would like to be a guest on a future show or attend a future show, please visit tmsidk.com. You can follow us on social media at tmsidk underscore show. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. My name is Stephen Dubner. Our fact checker tonight is Sean Ramosverm. And tonight's co-host is the comedian Hari Kundabolu. Before we get back to the game, we have got some lightning round questions written especially for you, Hari. Shall we? Yes. Ready? As noted earlier, you are a native of Queens, New York, as is the 45th president of the United States, Donald Trump. On a scale of 1 to 10, how proud does that make you? That's my answer. <laughs> we have one president from Queens. It's Donald Trump. Yeah. And he doesn't reflect Queens at all. The most diverse, open-minded place in the world. And Yeah, Queens. Yeah. And it's funny because, like, the Quakers have uh, one president, and it's Richard Nixon. <laughs> it's, like, the same kind of thing where, like, if I was a Quaker, I'd be like, man, mm. what was wrong with the guy on the box? The guy on the oatmeal <laughs> box is fine. Like, um, Other than yourself, who's your favorite Queens native? Uh, my brother. Uh, his name is Ashok Kundabolu. Uh, he used to be the hype man Dapwell in the uh, rap group Das Racist. No way. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Yeah, and we do a podcast together, and yeah, I, I think my brother's brilliant. Yeah. And I couldn't think of anybody else. <laughs> oh, oh, uh, uh, Tribe Called Quest. All right, I changed yeah. my mind. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> other than Donald Trump, who's your favorite president? Bill Pullman in Independence Day. <laughs> <laughs> who's your favorite comedian? Stuart Lee. He's a British comedian uh, that I became obsessed with about eight years ago, and I still think... Uh, uh, he's, he's incredible. Have you met him? Have you worked with him? Yeah, I think I scare him a little bit. Because uh, I, I mention him in, in every interview whenever I get asked who my favorite comedian is. Or, or even when it's not asked, I find a way to bring him up. So at this point, like, when, I, when I go to a show and see him in London, like, he'll give me free stuff, which is really sweet. But I think it's a way of him saying, please don't hurt me. <laughs> I have a family. Uh, I understand you just made your first documentary for True TV called The Problem with Apu. What is the problem with Apu? <laughs> okay. Sean, you will understand. <laughs> Hank is area. <laughs> when I think Sean and I were growing up, there were no South Asian Americans in the media that were represented except Apu, uh, who is a convenience store owner on The Simpsons, and he's voiced by Hank Azaria, a white guy. And as you can imagine, kids were really nice about it, never brought it up, ever. <laughs> Yeah, so it's just strange that like Apu still exists in 2017 when so many things have changed, but he kind of got grandfathered in because The Simpsons is The Simpsons, and it's such an incredible, important, legendary show. And so uh, it's a story of the history of that voice and of that show and what these kind of like ethnic portrayals mean to people. Mm. Yeah. And finally, we'll do a quick this or that round with Hari Kondabolu. Uh, Queens or Brooklyn? Um, Queens. I live in Brooklyn because I sold out, but Queens. Mets or Yankees? Uh, Mets reluctantly. Mm. I mean, come on, they all, they all get injured all the time. Something's wrong with that training staff. First Amp Viv or second Amp Viv? It's first Amp Viv. Mm. I mean, that's just kind of, right? I mean, first Amp Viv, just, there was a, a spark, there was fire, like that, that was a good Amp Viv. That was my favorite Amp Viv. Okay, and finally, shampoo or conditioner? <laughs> well, Stephen... <laughs> I thought of a product where you combine both shampoo and conditioner into one formula. Interesting. Ladies and gentlemen, Hari Kondabolu. Great job. All right, let us get back to our little game. Would you please welcome our next guest, Peter Gethers. 
Peter Gathers, you're a well-known uh, figure in, in some circles, but for those who don't know, why don't you tell us what you do? <laughs> uh, I do many things. Uh, I'm an author. My latest book is called My Mother's Kitchen. I'm a book editor, and I write screenplays, and I produce television shows, and I guess on my obit, it will probably say that I'm one of the founders of Fantasy Sports. So we should assume that you came here on a, uh, a private jet or at least a sedan chair carried by linebackers or something? Well, here's the thing that most people don't know about fantasy sports. We started it in 1980, a group of idiots, basically. <laughs> it is now estimated to be a $4 billion a year industry. The 12 of us who actually started this, not realizing that we've made over the years... Mm. We've calculated this pretty precisely. Altogether, we've made about $128. (laughs) Uh, Congratulations, yeah. Um, So who were these 11 other guys? It sounds... uh... Well, the one who really started is a guy named Dan Okrent. We wrote a play called Old Jews Telling Jokes Together. Uh, Dan was really the inventor of fantasy sports, and he called various friends together, and we met at a place called... La Rotisserie, a restaurant oh, on the Upper East Side. The rotisserie baseball comes from the name of the restaurant? It absolutely does. Oh. And cleverly, because we were so financially advanced, when people really started playing, we fought really hard to keep the name Rotisserie, thinking that's where the real money was. <laughs> <laughs> so We also yeah. thought the money was in T-shirts. Yeah. But yeah. it Good. turned out it was in calling it fantasy baseball and building up stat services and, and it's... You know, global. Well, this is also pre-computer, uh, pre-common computer. We would actually get the box scores in the morning from the newspapers because you couldn't go online to find out in real time. And we would keep our statistics with a pencil. I think we didn't even have pens in 1980. <laughs> <laughs> and then we would call and send them to Dan, who was the biggest nerd of the 12 nerds, and he would put all the stats together. And we did things like, We went on the Today Show, and we would talk about it because we thought, aren't we clever? We're 12 people, and the only 12 people who will ever be doing this. And it started catching on, and when computers hit, suddenly you went, we don't have to do this by pencil. And suddenly, seven or eight years later, millions of people were playing this all over the world. I mean, so was there no way to copyright or trademark like what the game is maybe just the rules of the game or kind of the concepts in the game? Yes. Okay. But, we, <laughs> but we didn't do it. Oh. <laughs> is it still not copyright? I mean, it not doesn't really seem to because be right. you can't really copyright the rules to something like this. We could have taken much greater advantage, but as we tell people now, we really only did it for the fun of it. We weren't interested in making billions of dollars. <laughs> uh, hurry, do you play? I, I uh, nearly failed a couple of classes in college because of it, yes. Uh-huh. It was baseball. It was, I did a little basketball, but it was mainly baseball. I, everybody likes to talk about their fantasy team, and nobody cares, but everyone <laughs> likes to talk about what they did, but you're a captive audience. I traded, I'm still telling you, I traded, uh, Barry Bonds was off to a slow start that season, so I traded Barry Bonds for Roger Clemens, and Barry Bonds ended up hitting 73 home runs that year. So here's a question. You mentioned earlier that um, there's fantasy versions of everything. How, yeah. how extensive does it get? Oh, it's crazy. started with fantasy baseball. We did a book. We did a book about fantasy basketball, then fantasy football. 
fantasy soccer became very popular outside of America. And for real, there's fantasy sumo wrestling oh, gee, now. Wow. But there's almost no sport you can name anywhere that doesn't have some version of fantasy sports. Now, it. which sports or leagues in the U.S., let's say, are most and least receptive to it? Because I know that some people feel it kind of corrupts the game itself, but then others acknowledge that it brings a lot of interest from people who wouldn't be interested otherwise. It totally corrupts the game, and we're all racked by guilt about the fact that we basically ruin sports around the world. But on the other hand, it does add a level of interest. The most popular one by far is football, because football... I think wouldn't exist without gambling. Baseball is very receptive to it because it's such a statistically based game and the history of baseball is all statistics. Oakland actually invented a stat for the original fantasy league which has become crucial to modern baseball which is called WHIP, a walks and hits per innings pitch which didn't exist until we started using it. The irony being that that statistic is now used by baseball uh, general managers and scouts and so on to make more money for themselves while you earn ever less money from the things that you invented. Exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it kind of feels like all of you should have some kind of, I mean, if not getting inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, at least have some kind of consideration considering like the whole game changed because of it. Well, you. we actually did have an induction ceremony in Cooperstown and we went up there and spoke. It was quite moving and we all thought it was permanent until we found out about a week later, it was only for the day, and then oh our plaques God. were removed. Wow. Yeah. In the beginning, when it was just the 12 of you, and you're all gathering the information, but you're gathering the information in order to compete against each other, I gather, oh, right? Oh, it was incredibly competitive, and none of us really knew the others in the room. So I still remember once, so this is 1980, I knew there was a lawyer, Michael Pollitt, the owner of the Pollitt Burroughs, and... Um, this is what I say to his assistant. Tell him it's the general manager of the Gethers Wagoners. I'm, I'm, I'm calling about Omar Moreno. So he gets on the phone. He goes, I'm preparing a case for the Supreme Court. I can't really talk now. And I go, but I'm talking Omar Moreno. And I hear him go, Marge, hold my calls for a couple of minutes. So it was very obsessive. And all we cared about really was winning and cheating our friends. That was... <laughs> And I can't tell you how many times I would call the Kansas City Royals or whoever it was, the Chicago Cubs, because we were National League only at the time. And I'd say, hi, my name is Peter Gathers, and I work for the New York Daily News. I saw that Ron Santo left the game. Can you tell me if there's anything wrong with it? And they'd say, his hamstring is bad. He's going to be out for three weeks. So I would call somebody and say, I'm giving you Ron Santo, who's a great player. (laughs) And, you know, now you can't do that. The fun of cheating your friends is gone because everybody has the same information. Sean Ramosferum, the fascinating but ultimately sad birth of fantasy sports. Tragic. Can I make this a little sadder? Because I think I can. (laughs) So uh, it looks like um, there's a fantasy sports trade association now. And uh, in 2013... They calculated that 30 million Americans, at least, were spending about $500 a year on fantasy sports, which adds up to about $15 billion a year instead of four. What's the difference, right? But um, <laughs> it turns out the NFL only makes about 10 a year, so you really did something. Um, <laughs> can, I, can I say something from the Please, bottom of my heart, sure. really? I mean this. I hate you. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't dislike you. I actually hate you. Don't, don't kill the fact checker, okay? 
Um, other fun facts. Uh, <laughs> you can get insurance on players now. I had no idea. You can hire a lawyer to settle disputes between you and your friends. Uh, like an and actual those lawyers lawyer. make more money than we've made from inventing it. <laughs> in like an hour. Like an actual <laughs> lawyer or somebody who calls themselves a lawyer but is a fantasy no, lawyer. No, like actual lawyers pra- <laughs> who practice like conflict oh resolution. God. But it isn't just friendships, dying, It's also marriages. Uh, it's one California personal stylist left her husband after he dropped over $1,000 in one year in fantasy football. And she ended up uh, leaving him and then setting up a website for other fantasy sports widows. So, but, really, yeah, congratulations for creating you. such Can a I, monster. <laughs> yeah. So, Peter Gathers, thank you so much for playing <laughs> Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Great job. When we return, we'll talk about everything we learned tonight. And, yes, we will pick a winner that is right after this break. Welcome back. We have been learning tonight about secrets and fantasy sports and tooth crowding and so much more. Would you please welcome our next guest, Zach Jaggers. Hey, Zach, who are you? What do you do? Um, I'm a linguistics PhD student at NYU. So I study the sounds of language, and so that's phonetics, and I also look at sociolinguistics, which is looking at how language differs across different social groups and contexts meaningfully. Okay, so that sounds like you can tell us a lot of things we don't know. What do you have for us tonight? So, you know, we've seen language varying across other things like region in the U.S. or race or ethnic identity or gender or age or the likes, but research is recently finding that politics seems to have an accent. Hmm. Um, So I want to spell a word for you. Don't say it out loud, but just say it to yourself. Uh, Ready? I-R-A-Q. How do you pronounce that word? So... Research that um, has been done by others and that I've also been involved in has found that this is patterning with political identity. So Democrats are more likely to say Iraq, which is the pronunciation closer to what we would call the source form or how this is pronounced in Arabic, while Republicans are more likely to use the pronunciation Iraq or Iraq. Hmm. And there are other examples of same words different pronunciations that you can identify as politically connected? Right. So one question that I had was, this is a fairly politically charged name, but does this extend to other variable words or place names or the likes? Um, And I actually found the same political effect to hold for variables like Chile versus Chile or Quebec versus Quebec. So Democrats or liberals were more likely to use the more source-like pronunciations, so Chile or Quebec, than conservatives who are more likely to use the less source pronunciations. I mean, I'm confused about the... Because you called it the the source form. Mm-hmm. Isn't that just the proper way a thing is pronounced? <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, the source form of my name is Hari. Yes. yes. And then there's all the alternate pronunciations, which are wrong. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. So one thing is clear is that if we think about these different pronunciations, so Iraq, 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 like none of those are actually like the source form. So if there are any Arabic speakers here, like Al-Iraq, like that would be the closest to how it's pronounced in Arabic. Even Iraq isn't incorporating these foreign sounds that we don't even know how to pronounce, right. but it's still closest to that source form. So that's that distinction a it's little like bit. It's like that balance between trying to get it as close to right as possible without right. sounding racist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, like sometimes people like my name is Hurry, but sometimes people add an act like like Hurry, and like I don't sound like that, right. so probably not. 
so Zach, um, how much of this is just A, contagion, and B, signaling, right? Like, I know one or a small group of people who say it like that, and I think of myself as like them, and therefore I want to signal that I am like them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think there's both involved there. So I think definitely, like, how people around you pronounce it is going to be an influence of how you pronounce it yourself. Like, no matter what your political identity or your ideology is, like, if you grew up around people who pronounce this as Iraq, you still might be more likely to pronounce this as Iraq yourself, no matter, you know, what your political identity is. But because of your political identity or ideology, you might be more likely to change your pronunciation later on. We've also been looking at how people treat incoming, like new words that they've never heard anyone pronounce before. Mm. So I just give someone a fake word like sloxy, and then I see like how do they pronounce this word? Um, and some people are like slaxy or slasky or something like that. And I'm also finding this same kind of pattern holding where like the more liberal or even more specifically the more like globalist an ideology they have, the more likely they are to replicate that form that they mm. heard. I feel like depending on who's uh, the listener, like the pronunciation will change. And I remember there was an Obama speech uh, where he started with Pakistan and then midway through he went to Pakistan, which like to me, it's like, oh, you saw your poll numbers going down midway through that speech and you're like... Pakistan. Pakistan. That's a good name. Yeah. So in terms of like the signaling question, there's a lot of signposting that that can do for sure in terms of like how people will perceive you. Mm. Um, so, you know, another factor that could be contributing to these things is like one's attitude toward the place or toward the name that they're referring to. So I think of how like Democrats, they might be more likely than Republicans to say Iran or Iraq rather than Iran or Iraq. But in terms of Taliban, you're very um, unlikely to hear them saying Taliban you're still going to hear them say Taliban. Hmm. But what's the thinking behind like people wanting to hear Pakistan, for example? Or is it, they're more comfortable with it? That sounds more American to them? Yeah, So and, and so that's what I'm looking at is this globalist versus nationalist ideology. So what I would call a nationalist ideology is how much people think that like one nation means like one language or one culture. And I'm finding that people who identify as more nationalist are more likely to use these less source-like pronunciations, especially for like public figures. There might be this having to to walk these different lines of who am I catering to and trying to accommodate. So as a linguist, um, why do you care? What do you, what do you do with this? So, I mean, part of the question is what does this say about a person? Like how, when we see this variation, what can this lead us to think about a person? And my research so far is suggesting that this isn't necessarily about do I identify as Democrat or Republican, but it's more about do I identify as globalist versus nationalist. Uh, How does it work with like dialects happen and all of a sudden something that was a mispronunciation becomes Mm -hmm. its own thing? Like I know with my parents, like I always made fun of uh, of their English, and then you go to Indian, it's like it's considered Indian English. Did you then feel bad for making fun of your parents? For I didn't tell them I learned all this stuff. Like I, but yeah, I mean, at what point does like Iraq become legitimate? You never really want to ask a linguist a question of like, what is a legitimate way to say something or what is like the right way to say something? Because like none of these necessarily inherently like right or correct or better than the other, but these do definitely become a convention in time for a particular group. Is there a way to stop like the nationalist pronunciations? I used air quotes. Um, <laughs> 
like, is there a way to get Iraq to be Iraq or something close to it? Like, what do you have to do? It's tricky. It's tricky, right? I mean, so, you know, one thing is getting at people's ideologies and what do they think about this and recognizing that how I say this might be perceived differently by different people. And if I'm not saying this the way these people are saying this, I might be found to be inconsiderate or impolite or rude. And in Mm. fact, some follow-up research that I've been working on is finding that, that people do find that if you don't pronounce someone's name like they do, you are considered more rude. Um, But there's still, on the other end of the spectrum, if you think of language reform or this, like, trying to get people to pronounce something a certain way, you still want to avoid being what we would call prescriptive. So you don't want people who might not have access to any of those resources to feel judged for however they speak this language. Sean, um, Zach Jaggers is, we'll call this one, I say Iraq, you say Iraq, let's call the whole thing off. What what can you tell us? (laughs) I love that that was your example because that was like the first time I really noticed this phenomenon because I moved here from like Canada where everyone said Iraq in like 2001 and then notorious English speaker George W. Bush would be saying Iraq all the time and I was just like I hope he never goes to Niger. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it, t- it totally checks out this whole <laughs> globalist, nationalist thing. But the more recent example is um, during the 2016 campaign Islam versus Islam. Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah, this is still happening, and I don't know how we're going to fix it. (laughs) I've had an experience with that, too, because I'm a Hindu, but in America, it's often pronounced Muslim. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Harry, and and thank you, Zach Jaggers. Thanks so much for playing Tell Me Something Out Now. And would you please welcome our final guest of the evening, Philip Maiman. <laughs> Philip, so nice to have you. So first of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm an associate professor of analytics and finance at the University of Bridgeport and uh, chief analytics officer for Vantage Sports. Is that a fantasy sports outfit? By we do some fantasy sports. Really? <laughs> <laughs> all right, Philip, uh, that's what you do. What do you have for us? The relationship between the music that we listen to and the markets that we trade in. Would you like to know the relationship? Really? The relationship between music and stock markets? Yes. Yeah, love the to The relationship is between the complexity. So sometimes markets are moving around and bouncy, and sometimes songs can be either very simple, like a steady dance tune, or they can be complex. How would you expect them to be related? When, you're, when the market is turbulent and bouncy, what kind of music do you think you listen to? Uh, I think you want me to say bouncy? I, that's right. I do want you to say bouncy. It's wrong. Um, it's, <laughs> uh, it's, it's opposite, which is surprising, right? When the market is crazy, it's all over the place, we tend to want to listen to simple music. And when the market is kind of steady, we want to listen to crazy music. And when you say we, are you implying that people who don't pay any attention to the markets at all would have the same appetite, that it kind of gets into the, uh, into the air? Yes, well, th- what I looked at was the Billboard Top 100, and you, you think you don't listen to it, but you hear it. You hear it in elevators. Your kids hum it. Well, okay, so I guess there are two, two ways it could not work, right? Which is people who don't listen to current music and people who don't pay any attention to the markets at all, right? right? But you're saying that the two go together yes. somehow yes. in a causal way? Good question. Uh, before I tell you what the cause is, what the mechanism is, there's yeah. one more hidden secret. It's this. Which comes first? Right? What do you think I expect you to say? Um, Hurry, what does he expect me to say? I'm sick of being wrong. I think he'd expect, well, the the market would have issues and therefore the music would reflect it. I'm going to say the market would have issues and the music would reflect it. What an excellent independent (laughs) thought answer. Yes, that's, and that's also wrong, which is wonderful. (laughs) No, that's why it was interesting research. It turns out that the music we listen to first 
we like, let's say, simple music, that means in a year, the markets will go crazy. What? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what comes to simple music? So uh, I look at beat variance. So how much does the beat change over time? So a very simple song would be like a, a steady dance tune. And a more complicated song would be something about maybe Ray Charles or Barbara Streisand. Huh. When's the last time Ray Charles was at the top of the Billboard charts? <laughs> I mean, not that I went, it. You don't know. Not that I wouldn't love him to be there, but... Uh. Uh, well, uh, there are more recent examples. Um, I forgot the guy's name, but uh, it's true that historically the more complex stuff was back when the market was really, really simple in the 60s. And when you talk about markets being complex or bouncy, are you talking about volatility yes. per se? yes. No kidding. What were you trying to either find out or prove or whatnot? I was trying to prove what you said he said, which is that when markets are more volatile, you'd expect music to be more volatile. Uh, there was a new company that had come out at the time. It's called Echo Nest, and they analyzed music through the sound of artificial intelligence and the way the human ear would work, and they put out an API. I started looking through it. I thought that would be a quick little easy result, but it turned out to be the opposite. And now the real question is the question you asked before. Why? Why does this happen? If you're driving across a flat country road with nothing to see, then you probably want to listen to some kind of interesting music, maybe some jazzy, something classical, something complex. But if you're doing a very complicated maneuver, like, let's say, ooh, parallel parking, what kind of music do you want to listen to? Do you want to listen to something that's hard to concentrate on, or do you want to listen to something kind of steady? Ideally, you want to listen to no music. I think that's the essence of Hmm. what's happening here. It's not that you can uh, put out a tune that is more complex and therefore have a steadier market in a year. But what we are doing is we're all planning for the future, right? And your plan for the future either is very complex or very simple. If your plans are relatively simple, you have extra cycles to listen to. That is such an awesomely appealing theory, but I don't believe a word of it, I have to say. (laughs) No, I I, I love the theory. I just don't know how you could prove to your satisfaction that that's real. Uh, Here's how I would think about it. It's not that we have a psychological bias to prefer a particular music when we are planning for a particular market. That's ridiculous. What really may be happening is a completely different thing, which is we are human beings. We are like computers, but we have limits. And when you have extra cycles, this is one way of measuring this little tiny extra. So what music is good for the market right now? (laughs) Follow-up question, should Miley Cyrus be stopped? (laughs) (laughs) Um... (laughs) So right now, the volatility of the market is really low, which suggests that the music we listen to now and that we have been listening to has been relatively complex. If that's the case and that continues, then the market will be relatively uh, steady. Hmm. Philip Myman uh, telling us about how to beat the stock market. Um, Sean, anything to add or challenge? Uh, there's some stuff about Beyonce and, and the Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears being popular in the late 90s when the market was doing well. It seems like it's all just correlation, not causation. Um, uh, Is that fair? So, okay, uh, the correlation would be the first part of the results, that they seem to be related in an opposite way. If that were the end of the story, sure. fine. But it turns out one happens earlier than the other. On December, mid-December, when the Billboard Top 100 comes out, if you use that information to predict volatility for the next year, uh, you can historically backtest and you make some money. Such an interesting idea, and thank you so much thank for you. bringing it to us tonight. Philip Myman. thank you. Can we give one more hand to all our guests tonight? So great. Thank you, everybody. Remember, everyone, the three criteria. Did our guests tell us something we really didn't know? Was it worth knowing? And was it demonstrably true? So, Hurry, I'm curious to know if anything particularly impressed you tonight? Well, the secrets thing I thought was uh, incredible, just because it, it's, it's how you live. The idea that like uh, it's bad for health, maybe that leads to more openness. 
Honestly, I like the baseball one, too, just because I'm a baseball yeah. fan. Um, and I feel really bad about everything. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but I think the secrets thing is, is pretty incredible. Do you think you'll be more interested in surrendering a secret or two? I think the next time I'm in a relationship and like we have a discussion with regards to like openness, uh, I have something to say. Like If we don't share with, with each other more, mm-hmm. one of us is going to die. Mm. Yeah. 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 That's a sweet thought. Um, Sean, what caught your eye and ear tonight? You know, I don't eat a lot of meat, roots, or bulbs, but I think I might start because <laughs> I'm really concerned about the health mm. of my teeth. But I'm also really curious about this pop music thing. I, I mean, I, I, I listen to way too much pop music, and I don't invest in the stock market at all, but I think I'm going to start maybe uh, looking at the stock market depending on what I'm listening to every day. Okay. Yeah. I also like the um, pronunciation mm. uh, research a great deal because it feels like it's a good shorthand. Like, oh, you said Iraq. We are not going to be friends. <laughs> and... Now, do you have to exclude people who um, just can't learn to say your name correctly? Man, I would have no friends if that was the case. You know, my name, which is spelled with a PH, um, which I realize is not very phonetic um, if, you, if you run into it. So I've been called a lot of things for a long time. But the other day in an airport, the TSA guy looked at it, and I got a whole new one, which I love so much I'm going to use it. He called me, oh, St. Effin. Oh, that. <laughs> and now, audience, you've heard from us... Uh, But we don't pick the winner, you do. Okay, so it's time to do that. Please take out your phones and follow the texting instructions on the screen. So who will it be? Michael Slepian with The Hidden Cost of Secret Keeping. Shara Bailey with The Incredible Shrinking Jaw. Peter Gethers with The Birth of Fantasy Sports. Zach Jaggers with I Say Iraq, You Say Iraq. Let's call the whole thing off. Or Philip Myman with How to Beat the Market. While our live audience is voting, let me ask you a favor. If you enjoy Tell Me Something I Don't Know, please spread the word. Give it a nice rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to listen to the show without ads, sign up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash tell me. Thank you. Okay, the audience vote is in. Once again, thanks so much to all our guest presenters. Our winner tonight... Zach Jaggers for telling us about Iraq, Iraq. Well done. Congratulations. And that is our show for tonight. I hope we told you something you didn't know. Huge thanks to Hari and Sean, to our guest presenters, and thanks to you for coming to play Tell Me Something. Have a great night. On the next episode of Tell Me Something I Don't Know, we are searching for IDKs about one of our favorite subjects, food. Our co-host is the chef and chopped judge, Alex Gornicelli. I'm so stressed out when we write the menu up because I just feel like my description is never going to be good enough to sell a damn piece of asparagus anymore. <laughs> it has to be, you know, watered by the Queen of England with Lady Gaga's <laughs> blessing or it's not going to get sold. That's next time on Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in association with Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, 
Perry Huggins, Brian Gutierrez, Dan DeZula, Rachel Jacobs, Nathan Rossborough, and David Herman, who also composed our theme music. Thanks also to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting on this show. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or on TMSIDK.com. You can also listen without ads by signing up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash tellme. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.